Hello everyone, it's March 27th, 2018. This week, how can the Dawn spacecraft learn more about Ceres just orbit really low? And that Kodiak spaceport in Alaska, they've got a new and somewhat stealthy customer, but let's talk about who it really is and liftoff. And we have Cook Tower. Welcome to episode 151 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. My name is David. And my name is Ben. Is that how we're doing this now? I, I don't know. I just, it just, whatever. <laughs> How's your week going, David? All right, busy week, or no, not actually busy, just uh, stressful. Because I'm, I will be moving soon. We had discussed this uh, a few days ago because we have a cool interview coming up, and that's going to be tricky because I'm going to be on the road. Well, actually, I think I won't be. I think I can manage this, but uh, yeah, I'm moving out of state, so at least for a while, I don't know how long—an undetermined period of time. So yeah, having to do a podcast right in the middle of that can be tricky. And I guess we can't say who it is that we're interviewing. Uh, patrons know, but um, yeah, I don't want to miss this. So right, right, and I wouldn't want to do it without you. So yeah, we're gonna make it work. So that's been my stressful week. Uh, so yeah, do you do you want to de-stress with some space here? I guess let's de-stress with it this week in space flight history, and I know we got some winners. I think we had some inter- at least one interesting wrong answer, and I think it was because the reply was so certain that oh, I know who this is, and it's totally wrong. <laughs> so yeah, one of our winners was not Valentin Frank, um, and I, I don't say this to embarrass anybody, but like uh, it's you know that was that was a pretty long streak there. Uh, but Valentin uh, guessed. Uh, that it was the anniversary of the Mercury astronauts undergoing centrifuge testing. I guess uh, probably the the first time they hopped in a centrifuge. Because our our clue last week, that that makes sense because our clue last week was hurricanes aren't the only things that spin. But this is one of those clues that's got like two parts to it. So our actual winners are Gregory Dedalus, Kieran Thompson, Luke Johnson, Space is Kind of Cool, or Liam, uh, who runs Space is Kind of Cool, Chris Bush, and Faulty F9 Fairing, which there are so many of these novelty SpaceX Twitter accounts, and I'm betting that they're all run by one or two people uh, mm-hmm. in a wayward wayward boat and wayward plane. And Anyway, uh, yeah, like I said, the, the clue was hurricanes aren't the only things that spin, and the reason that that's the clue is because this week in Space flight history is the 1st of April 1960. It was the launch of Tiros 1, which is the first weather satellite. And one of the things that they wanted to do with the Tiros system was be able to monitor hurricanes and decide when they wanted to evacuate the coast. Tiros 1 was the first successful weather satellite, but it began a, a long string of other Tiros spacecraft. Tiros stands for Television Infrared Observation Satellite, and uh, they're kind of uh kind of simple um but like charmingly simple uh vehicles they are roughly shaped like a wash basin or like a cylinder but they're actually 18-sided right prisms they are 107 centimeters across from corner to corner and they are 56 centimeters high and they weigh 122.5 kilograms or at least Tiros 1 did and I kind of like to think of them as being this cake stand construction so you know those really nice cake stands that are like they're plastic and they have a lid that goes on top of them you can take the lid off and it's kind of this cake stand that makes a nice presentation well that's kind of how these things are built they have a reinforced base plate and then this cover that goes over top and the cover is sort of a a dome you know obviously it's squared off or whatever but it uh it's all one piece that lifts off of this thing tiros one uh was launched on a thor abel from cape canaveral and it had some 
uh, some pretty nice systems inside of it. Nice, not by today's standards, um, but still pretty darn impressive for the day. Um, so that cake stand cover was uh, covered on all sides by solar cells. There were 9,200 one centimeter by two centimeter silicon solar panels uh, or solar cells um, on each of those faces you have panels so that it can spin uh, and still have uh, light shining on a on a solar panel um, they charge 21 nickel cadmium batteries it had a single monopole antenna uh, for gr receiving ground commands and it stuck straight out of the top of the lid it had two pairs of cross dipole telemetry antennas so that's four structures but two antennas and they stuck out from the base. They stuck down and kind of out at a diagonal. And those were for transmitting data home. And then the whole thing was spin stabilized. That's the second part of the clue, right? So the clue is both talking about weather and a spinning spacecraft. So so this guy was spin stabilized. Um, and it, it had diametrically opposed pairs of solid fuel uh, rockets around the base. But here's the thing. Uh, I found two different sources. One said that there were five pairs and another said that there were three pairs and they, they both came from NASA documents. So I'm not sure which it is. I'm sure that, that what's going on here is some Tiro satellites had more rockets than others. Um, but I, I couldn't quite figure out exactly what Tiros one had. And anyway, so they were able to, uh, fire these guys at different times to get this thing into an eight to 12 RPM spin. And they could kind of maintain this spin by having rockets that pointed each way. So you could speed up or slow down and you know, you couldn't fire them off very often, right? Cause you only have, uh, three or five times to spin up or spin down in each direction. Because you said these were solid, so they were just one-time use? Yeah, just little pop rockets, yeah. And then the the most important subsystem here that I've left for last, uh, there were two 1.27 centimeter diameter VidCon TV cameras. They were both mounted in the base and they both faced downward. Uh, one was a wide angle and one was a narrow angle. And these things were just used to document cloud cover. That's kind of all they could do. You know, weather satellites today can look at moisture content and, you know, all these different things. And, and this was just, let's take some photos and transmit them home. You know, they basically did the job of a high altitude aircraft, but it was in space. Uh, it's, it's pretty cool. You know, it, it's interesting that with a spin-stabilized spacecraft, you might think that the spin is an issue for imaging, and in this case, they weren't uh, high enough resolution that the spin really mattered. But the spin stabilization means that this thing is stabilized relative to the universe, right? Not relative to the Earth. So if you were to launch it and spin it up in such a way that it could take photos at noon local time, that would work for a couple months. But by the time six months had gone around, now when it's pointing down at the ground, it's pointing at nighttime, right? Because this thing is following uh, the orientation of the universe as the Earth goes around the sun. And so I'm sure that there was some amount of procession here, but basically this satellite, you know, is is going to start looking at nighttime, uh, you know, after a certain amount of its life. And that's it's interesting that that's kind of how we designed these spacecraft at first was just like, well, we're, they're not going to be in space that long. <laughs> like, let's let's just spin stabilize them because we don't have the computers that can do more precise controlling and star tracking and that kind of thing. And I guess trying to reorient it while it was spinning would be really tricky because if it's spinning and you try to 
flip it, if you will. Well, here's the thing. It it didn't have orientation thrusters on it. It didn't have an attitude control system. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying is that you would have to de-spin it, then change right. orientation, then re-spin uh-huh. it. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I, I'm interested to know what kind of commands they were able to send, send up. I think they were just sending photography commands and, and, you know, hey, give us this data now. I mean, obviously, they weren't able to give it orientation commands because it's not built to change orientation. But, you know, there's not a whole heck of a lot of commanding you can do for a satellite like this. Anyway, so uh, with all that said, it launched April 1st, 1960. It ended its mission on June 15th, 1960. Uh, They had an electrical power failure, at which point they could no longer either capture or transmit photos. I don't remember which one, or I wasn't able to figure out which one it was. Um, But yeah, it lasted, it went from April to June. Like I said before, it wasn't the last one, but, uh, you know, it was... It was the first one, only operated for a couple months, but it was the first. This satellite took the very first image of space for television. Like, this was the first TV capture of the Earth from space. But was it the very first time that the Earth had been observed from space? The uh, first picture of Earth from 100 miles in space apparently was in 1947. So that was something, you know, suborbital. That was a V-2 rocket, it looks like. So if it's 100 miles up, I guess that is space. The best that I could find is that this was the first TV image. It's got that on its record. I don't know about (laughs) the first image ever. Right, from from orbit. Certainly yeah. suborbital space spacecraft took photos pretty early. But okay, anyway, that's that's this week in space flight history. So what do you have for next week then? All right, next week oh boy, I'm kinda of dreading this one. Next week in nineteen seventy three, when is a salute not a salute? When is a salute not a salute? That's next week in nineteen seventy three. I have a few guesses, but I'm not gonna say. But if you think you know, go ahead and give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck. Dawn plans to spiral down to a very low orbit around Ceres. So the Dawn spacecraft is still out there, still doing some interesting (laughs) stuff, still running on what little reaction mass it has. And uh, luckily, Ceres is not a very big whatever it is. It's not a planet, right? Planetoid? I'm not sure what the term is. We've talked about this before. Dwarf planet? uh, Yeah, technically it's dwarf planet. I really like the word planetesimal. Yeah, that's a good Um, one. I think we need to switch over to that. But yeah, so Dawn is still doing its thing. And it's getting ready to move to a new orbit. In fact, it's getting ready to move to its final orbit, I believe. So we we talked to Dr. Mark Raymond about uh, about Dawn and its propulsion system, but I don't think we talked very much about planning maneuvers. And so the source for this um, news item is actually the NASA blog, and it's a blog post written by Dr. Raymond because he does that. Pretty often he entitled this blog post, Dear Vernal Donquinoxes, because, you know, nerds are like that. Anyway, so uh, in this blog post, he talks a little bit about computing these orbital changes with, you know, a, a continual thrust motor. And in this case, they're using 100 computers, and they have so far... They had to run 45,000 trajectories before they decided on which one they were going to use. Because this is a continual thrust trajectory, and that's how much more complex it gets when you have to do that, yeah. huh? When, when um, you do days-long burns. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, Dan in the chat says, that actually sounds quite low to me. And yeah, that, I mean, this is, this is a, a pretty small change around a single body. There's no rendezvous involved here, so... Back in 2015 and 2016, Don was in two different orbits. One was called LAMO, 
and the other one was called XMO1. And XMO1 is Extended Mission Orbit 1, and LAMO is Low Altitude Mission Orbit, I believe. And these orbits uh, were circular orbits with a period of 5.4 hours and an altitude of 240 miles or 385 kilometers. So this is really low. And, and they often referred to these orbits as being the the lowest orbit in the mission, right? They're, they're like, this is the lowest orbit. And then from there, they went up to some higher orbits. And uh, we're going to come around to the final orbit, which is even lower than LAMO. So currently, they are in XMO5, Extended Mission Orbit 5, um, and it's a big, high elliptical orbit. Uh, the periapsis is 2,800 miles or 4,400 kilometers, and the apoapsis is 24,300 miles or 39,100 kilometers. So very, very uh, high orbit on the high end, um, and a, a very long period, a very eccentric orbit. On April 17th, they're going to fire up the engine and start flying to XMO6, which is sort of this intermediate orbit on the way down to uh, XMO7, the final orbit. XMO6 is going to be pretty low. It's going to have a periapsis of 235 miles or 375 kilometers, and it'll have uh, an apoapsis of 3,000 miles or 4,800 kilometers. Interestingly enough, this orbit is going to be comparable to HAMO, H-A-M-O, or XMO2, which were the third and fifth orbits that it took around Ceres. It's going to get there. Uh, it's going to get to XMO6 in May 14th, and they're going to do some pretty interesting science here. So last time when they were in HAMO and XMO2, um, these two orbits, they were able to look at the northern hemisphere in summer. And now they're going to be able to look at the southern hemisphere in summer. Um, so we're going to be able to compare the two hemispheres in this uh, in this transitional intermediate orbit. Also, so it, if you think about it as being ready to observe when it's at the high point of its orbit, uh, that high point is going to be over the southern hemisphere. So the low point of the orbit is going to be low down over the northern hemisphere at night. And that's really interesting because they can start getting, or maybe not night, but in winter at least. And so the, the periapsis is going to have a latitude of 50 to 60 degrees north. So that's pretty far north. And while they're that low, they're going to be able to get some good color photos of the northern hemisphere. Because um, last time this was, you know, kind of switched around, they were able to get color photos of the southern hemisphere and infrared photos of the uh, of the northern hemisphere. So we've swapped that around. So anyway, they're going to get to XMO6 on May 14th. On May 31st, they're going to start moving to XMO7. Now, <laughs> XMO7 is very, very, very low. Let me remind you of the previous lowest orbit was circular <laughs> at 240 miles or 385 kilometers. And now circular. Yeah. Now they're going to be going uh, to an apoapsis. The high point is going to be 2,500 miles or 4,000 kilometers. That's that's low, but that's still pretty high. The low point in the orbit is going to be 22 miles or 35 kilometers above the surface. Holy cow! <laughs> 
that's low. That's really, really, really low. That's so low. And given the low gravity of Ceres, I wonder if there are any geologic formations that might jut up that high. Probably not, but that's like skimming the surface at that point, 22 miles, you know? Yeah. And the chat thinks that I'm reading this wrong, and I'm not. So this is going to be a, a 24-hour period uh, orbit. And the low altitude, when, when they're at periapsis, they're going to be moving at a, at 1,050 miles an hour or 16 190 kilometers per hour relative to the surface. This is absolutely nuts. It's so fast and so low that their uh, color photos are going to be blurred, like motion blurred, like holy cow. Um, the other thing that they're going to be able to do is get some really good readings out of GRAND, which is the gamma ray and neutron detector. Um, so using GRAND, they're actually going to be able to look at planetary composition, not planetary, but uh, the, the composition of this object, and since they're looking in radiation spectra, they're actually going to be able to look at the entire top meter of, of the surface. They have previously done this, but obviously not so low. And what's interesting is that since this orbit is so incredibly low, it's actually going to process changing the latitude that periapsis is at. Um, so it's actually going to be rotating the argument of periapsis downward. So I, I guess that's actually the, the inclination and peri argument of periapsis are both changing at the same time. But anyway, while they're in this orbit, they're going to be able to um, get these readings from Grand at different latitudes every orbit. They're going to be slowly marching southward. And, uh, and so they're going to be able to uh, do some comparative science here. They're also going to be able to refine their observations of water because they already noted that water uh, is present, obviously not liquid water, but water is present and that it's concentration differs at different latitudes. So they're going to be able to kind of dial in these observations. But yeah, this this is so low that, yeah, you have to watch out for high mountains. I, I don't think they're actually 22 mile high mountains, but, you know, uh, theoretically, you know, uh, metaphorically, you have to look out for mountains. You have to worry about your orbit getting perturbed. And the other thing is that when you are this close to the surface, the gravity is really, really strong. And so it takes a lot of hydrazine to remain pointed in the right direction. Because unlike Tyros, Don obviously has the ability to point itself. And uh, XMO7 is going to suck out the rest of the hydrazine. They're, they're basically going to kill the um, kill the spacecraft dipping down this low, not not because they're uh, experiencing higher radiation or because they're going to hit anything, but just because they're going to run out of resources. Um, and this seems like such an incredible way to go out in a, in a blaze of glory. You know, that's kind of the way to do things. Do we know what they're going to do once it is out? Um, you said a, a blaze of glory, like maybe they can crash it into the surface, but probably yeah, not. Yeah, so planetary protection, I, I'm doubting that they have the ability to escape the pole, uh, you know, to, to actually re-enter uh, a heliocentric orbit, because once they do that, they then have to do um, avoidance maneuvers to make sure they don't re-encounter Ceres. So I think they're just going to crash into Ceres. I think that's what's going to happen. Yeah, we don't expect life to exist on Ceres, so I, I think they're just going to crash into the surface. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll find out in the future. I don't think that they've really talked about it. They certainly didn't talk about it in this blog post. There is certainly water on the surface, but it's 
obviously just all ice. I don't think there's any geologic activity, right? It's just too far away and there's no tidal forces because it's it's not close to anything else. So I don't see how, I don't see life as being a, a big issue there. So Dan's got a really good tidbit for us. This is going to be a 35 kilometer orbit and the tallest mountain on Ceres is Ahuna Mons and it's about five kilometers high. So that gives you a really good idea of how close they're going to be getting to the surface. Like basically four times above the tallest mountain. Like that's nothing. Um, you can't do that on Earth, right? I don't think. No, on Earth you would be well inside the atmosphere still at that point if you're just four times above, I think. Well, not well inside, but you would still be, yeah, it would be too thick. Because what, the tallest mountain is Everest and that's about 30,000 feet. Yeah, there you go. So actually Mount Everest is 8.8 .8 kilometers in height. So this actually isn't that big at all because I would have thought you'd see larger mountains on Ceres. But I mean, that could be for other reasons why, you know, they don't exist. But you know how on Mars, um, Olympus Mons is something ridiculous. It's, well, you know, the largest mountain slash volcano in the solar system. And that's just because, you know, Mars has like roughly one third gravity. So that can happen there. But uh, I don't think that would be possible on Earth. Not only does Mars have low gravity, but also it has, in its past, it had a lot of not tectonic activity, but volcanic activity. I mean, that's, you know, it's split open like a muffin, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, you can, you can pull that kind of stuff off. I don't believe that Ceres had that kind of activity. I mean, it certainly doesn't look like it has mountain ranges, you know, just lumps. Anyway, there you go. That That's your update on Dawn. It's, it's pretty cool. Before we move off yet, I said a wrong thing. I said that the lowest orbit is about four times above the tallest mountain. I, I mixed my units. I was comparing miles to kilometers. It's actually seven times uh, above the the highest mountain, Ahunamon. So thank you, Dan, for, for catching my my pretty bad math error there. All right, let's go on to our next story. So what do we call this company? Astra? Stealth? Don't know. No, no, it, it is called Astra. We know that. But I didn't think it was officially confirmed that that was their name. Yeah, no, it's it's officially confirmed that that's their name, but they still like answer the phones with like stealth space systems and that kind of thing. But the company is incorporated under the name Astra. Okay. Uh, this is concerning a launch from the Pacific Spaceport Complex, Alaska on Kodiak Island. And we think we know, um, well, we, okay, so we now know it's called Astra. <laughs> and uh, they'll be launching fairly soon, huh? Yeah, well, so he, the, the only question we have, unconfirmed, but we, we know what it is, is um, Kodiak is getting ready to host a launch. So they, they issued a notice to Mariners basically to clear out um, for a launch attempt between March 26th and April 6th. And so we're pretty pretty sure this is astra going to be doing this launch but they you know nobody said for sure we'll know as soon as faa issues a license but you know they uh, have been known to do that very very late before the before the launch so we've already had confirmation that Astra is going to be flying out of the Pacific Spaceport Complex. And uh, it's, it's not quite a confirmation, but Craig Campbell, who's the chief executive of Alaska Aerospace, who runs uh, PSCA, says that this upcoming flight is going to be the first truly commercial launch. Uh, and and basically by process of elimination, it's Astra. Like there's there's nobody else. It'll also be the first liquid fueled launch. Interestingly enough, the next liquid fuel launch is likely to be Vector R, 
um, which has an NET of July, a, a no earlier than uh, of July. So probably hopefully later this year, uh, you know, maybe a little bit later, um, but that's also going to be a, a liquid launch, but that's, that's not happening now. Right. Um, those are the only two commercial people and we're, we're looking at it at, at it being Astra. So uh, we talked about this uh, a few episodes ago. Astra used to be known as, as Ventions. Um, their chief executive is a guy named Chris Kemp, who used to be a chief technology officer over at NASA. This rocket is also called Astra, at least for now. Uh, it's 12 meters tall, and it reportedly can put 100 kilograms in a low Earth orbit. So we'll see how this goes. This first launch is not going to be an orbital launch. It's going to be a suborbital launch. But yeah, there you go. That's uh, that's <laughs> all we know about this upcoming launch. Yeah, one thing that I would like to know, I've read a little bit of speculation that this, and I don't think this is true but this might be a single stage vehicle because some people were saying that they can't spot the second stage or they don't know exactly how this thing is supposed to separate because there was a launch vehicle and i don't know if this is the actual 12 meter tall one but there was that one spotted on the tarmac that was what somewhere out in california i don't remember where yeah uh, yeah down here in alameda or up here in alameda i guess depending if we're talking about from florida or alaska yeah so that was seen on the tarmac and i guess just from those photos some people were wondering is this a single stage orbit vehicle which would be neat. I mean, I suppose if it's possible, then that might be the way to go just because it's so much simpler. I mean, that does reduce how much you can get to orbit just being 100 kilograms, but that might be worth it. Yeah, I think Dan's right. I think if it's doing 100 kilograms, SSTO is probably out. All right, let's do some short and sweet. And we just got three today. I snuck one. First one, Blue Star gets a 3D printed engine. So do you remember Zero to Infinity, the company that wants to launch a very wide rocket by first lifting it under a balloon? They just received their first 3D printed combustion chamber for their Teide One engine from, oh boy, here we go, Andalusian Foundation for Aerospace Developments, Advanced Center for Aerospace Technology. That's Fada Catech, F-A-D-A-C-A-T-E-C. Zero to Infinity plans to use 3D printing to allow non-linear cooling channels in their rocket. I read a little bit about that on the website. Uh, what that means is they kind of want to create cooling channels that are more like the veins that propagate throughout your body. So not straight lines, but more like a complex branching system. But I don't know if that would work for hardware, just because our bodies are soft, squishy things. And so that's why, I don't know, I could be wrong there, but uh, that's an interesting concept. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And next up, uh, Marshall Space Flight Center is America's lead propulsion center. So what does that mean? All right, the House Science Committee has approved a bill that designates the NASA Center to, quote-unquote, provide leadership for the U.S. rocket propulsion industrial base and for other purposes. The idea is to facilitate coordination among various agencies, companies, and academia to further develop rocket propulsion technologies. Uh, this bill was introduced by Representative Mo Brooks and goes by the acronym All-Star. Now, this one, uh, a little bit better than the previous one you just read, Fata Katek. Uh, this one, uh, All-Star, is uh, the American Leadership in Space Technology and Advanced Rocketry. So I, I think on the uh, acronym scale, I give that like a 7 out of 10. I don't know. That's, <laughs> that's a, not too bad, right? All-Star? It's a, it's a backronym for sure. And finally, Humanity Star has deorbited. And I, I never got to see it. Uh, Humanity Star, the 76-faceted geodesic sphere launched by Rocket Lab, was originally predicted to be in orbit for nine months, according to their website. Uh, instead, the low-density, uncontrolled satellite deorbited on March 22nd, and they changed their website to say that it was predicted to deorbit on March 22nd. 
second. (laughs) That's a huge discrepancy. I mean, no, I mean, it makes sense that it deorbited so early, but just the fact that they're like, nope, we knew it. This is what we knew. Changed our website. It's got to be true. (laughs) Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. We just got uh, one little concern, I guess, that you have, Ben, about another Ben. Ben Hallard and Chris Bush both pointed out that Apollo 13 was the third attempt to land on the moon, not the second. I'm so sorry. I'm an idiot. Let's just move on. That almost doesn't even merit segue music, but I'm, I'm going to put it in anyway. <laughs> we'll keep it. I don't even remember you saying that, actually. That's something you mentioned last week. Yeah, in the in the This Week in Spaceflight History. We're just going to move on to upcoming launches. So what's our first uh, upcoming launch we have? Sure. First one is GSLV Mark II flying GSAT uh, 6A. It's a geostationary satellite for multimedia mobile applications. The applications are mobile. It's not applications for mobile phones. Anyway, so it's uh, got a nine-year planned uh, operational life. So this is flying on March 29th at 11.26 hours UTC. Uh, Next up on the same day, uh, March 29th, the Falcon 9 full thrust, and that is launching Iridium 5, and that's launching from Vandenberg, uh, Space Launch Complex 4E. I guess this is the fifth in a constellation of 10 satellites being delivered to uh, low Earth orbit. Fifth set of 10 satellites. In a series of 75 total satellites that SpaceX will launch. Okay, so that's quite a... Every every time we have an Iridium next launch, you and I both do the same thing, where where we're like, oh, that's just one big satellite. No, it's 10 small satellites. Yeah, they're everywhere. Um, So of course you can watch that one live uh the launch window looks like it's an instantaneous uh, launch window at 1419 utc or 1419 and 49 seconds to be specific and then the last launch before some other events uh is a falcon 9 full thrust flying uh crs 14 uh it's always cool to see dragons fly to uh to the international space station um of course this is the 14th because it's crs 14 those numbers rack up pretty quickly we we have an instantaneous launch window for this it's april 2nd at 2030 hours utc so uh we've got some associated events with that uh but first let me tell you about uh a spacewalk that's coming up so this is a u.s spacewalk uh 49 the spacewalk is happening on march 29th the coverage begins at 6 30 a.m eastern time and the spacewalk is scheduled to begin at approximately 8 10 a.m eastern time so this is going to be Hopefully, I'm going to be in the office. Usually, I'm not in the office on Thursdays, but hopefully, I can watch this one. Um, And then jumping ahead to CRS-14, after the launch, there's going to be a post-news conference on NASA TV at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And then the rendezvous and capture is going to happen. Well, capture is going to happen at 7 a.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday, April 4th. And the coverage for that is going to start an hour and a half early at 5.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Installation is going to happen later that day at Looks like 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time is the the coverage begins, so probably shortly after that, the installation will actually happen. Alrighty, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And with that said, we're going to deal with the show, and let's cue the music, most of which is brought to you by Ronald Jenkins. Check him out at ronaldjenkins.com, and some of which is brought to you by Tim Dodd, the Everyday Astronaut. If you liked this episode, please review us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you enjoyed our show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Thanks to our $5 and up Patreon supporters in the ground control chat room listening to the show live. And it looks like we have another new flight director, huh? Yeah, so welcome to our brand new flight director, William 
Andrews. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. You can connect with us on Twitter and Reddit at Orbital Podcast. Uh, you can send questions and comments to info at theorbitalmechanics.com. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. And that's all for this week, so we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody.